All right, we're going to get started with uh, Bible study here. For those of you who want to join us, if you don't, here's your last chance to escape. No guilt. Hi, Sandy. Can you hear me? No, you can't. Okay. Uh, okay. Can you hear me, Sandy? Yeah. Okay, cool. Good. All righty. Well, as you're getting settled into your seats, we are continuing our study joyful together, looking at the letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, we've been making our way slowly but surely through the letter here. Take this off. I'm already kind of hot. Only going to work up more. Um, and uh, last week, we took a dive into what uh, we said is one of the most important, significant passages in the whole New Testament, especially for understanding who Jesus is and what he did. That's uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But we saw that Paul had kind of a practical upshot to sharing parting of Jesus for that hymn or if it was um, if he was quoting it from somebody else. But in any event, his upshot in including that was a very practical one of saying, hey, guys, to be humble. Even as our Lord Jesus, though he was equal with God the Father, he did not consider that equality a thing to be grasped to be two. But to the contrary, he poured himself out. He became nothing for our sake. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, we also ought to humble ourselves before one another. Strive to live, um, Paul says, without grumbling or disputing that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's how low the bar is for you and me to be able to shine in this present world, just don't be a huge grumbler. <laughs> if we just don't grumble too much, that simple non-act makes us to stand out in the world so filled with, with complaining and grumbling. It was true for Paul 2,000 years ago. I think, if anything, it's more true for us today. So now uh, we're to the latter half of chapter two. We're going to be picking up with verse 19, where Paul is going to um, talk a little bit about some of the other leadership, some of the next generation leadership after him. And so we're going to go through the end of the chapter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that unless you have particular questions. Um, but then I really want to get into the beginning of chapter three, where Paul makes a bold claim about who is the true people of God, and then gets into his own kind of backwards biography, as we'll see at the beginning of chapter three. So let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll delve in. Blessed Lord, we thank you for this letter of Philippians, this letter of joy, which leads us to a deeper understanding and appreciation of what your son Jesus has done for us. And he prayed and he asked you, Father, that his joy would be in us and that our joy might be made full. And so as we study this letter of joy, we pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more joyful and joyful together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, as I've done in previous weeks, I want us to keep in mind that this was originally a letter that it was a letter by Paul written to a church. It wasn't first and foremost um, a theological treatise, a diatribe, something like that, but it was a letter that would have been read aloud in the context of the worshiping assembly. And so I want to read aloud to you the, um, the full section that we're going to uh, study and cover today, and then we'll circle back around and, and go through it bit by bit. All right, so starting with chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, 
He has served with me in the gospel, and I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And that's where we'll pause for now. All right, so let's, let's turn our attention to the latter half of chapter two. And Paul is uh, thinking about the prospect of his own impending death. He's in prison as he's writing this. And no doubt the Philippians are wondering, as others of his churches were wondering, well, if Paul dies, what's going to happen to us? Is it one of these things that, well, the pastor goes and then the church just crumbles? That's their fear. That's their concern and apprehension. And so to that concern and that anxiety, Paul writes about two of his fellow workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So what do we know about Timothy? Not a whole lot. We learned from um, some of the other letters that um, Timothy was reared in the faith. He was part of this next generation of disciples. Um, he was not himself an apostle, but he was the follower following in the next generation of the apostles. We learn in 2 Timothy that uh, he... Timothy was reared by his mother and his grandmother who had uh, been brought to the faith, who were converts. And so uh, from the time of his very youth, perhaps even um, from the time of his birth, he was brought up in faith in Christ. And Timothy had personally been mentored by Paul so that he was, in a sense, kind of Paul's protege. Uh, Tim uh, Paul calls Timothy his own son, by which he doesn't mean, you know, I'm, I'm Timothy's dad, but what he means is his spiritual father right? He had really discipled Timothy and prepared him. They didn't have a seminary, right? He couldn't send Timothy off to St. Louis or Athens and say, all right, get your training and then, you know, come back. But it was very much a kind of apprenticeship-based model where Paul had apprenticed Timothy to himself and given him the, the knowledge that he needed to be a, a faithful minister of the gospel. It's interesting, Paul makes this comment in passing um, that he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You say, yikes, that's a pretty dour assessment of the early church's leadership. But again, it's one of these kind of misery loves company moments. Like, all right, so they had bad pastors, even in the early church, right? Paul's saying, look, I got a lot of these guys, and they just seem to be looking out for number one. Timothy isn't like that. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the other guy, Epaphroditus, right? Not as popular, of a, a lot of people named Timothy still today, not a lot of Epaphroditus's. 
I think the problem is there's not a good nickname that can go with it. You know, hey, APAF, you know, Dighty, what's happening? But this is a significant thing with Epaphroditus's name because it tells us that he himself, unlike Timothy, was probably a pagan convert. Anybody have a guess why his name might suggest that to us, that he was a, a pagan convert? Aphrodite. So Aphrodite was a, a famous Greek goddess. And so his name, Epaphrodite, one who is um, committed to uh, Epaphrodite, Epaphroditus, um, one who is committed to Aphrodite, suggests that he was probably born and raised in a, a pagan family. It would be something similar to if you met a Christian today whose name was Muhammad, right? That would tell you, okay, this is in all likelihood somebody who has come from a different faith, right? Not a lot of Christians naming their kids Muhammad, but there are a number of Christians who have come over from Islam, although in many cases they changed their name subsequently. But this tells us that Epaphroditus was probably a pagan convert, somebody who had been brought to the faith. And the Philippians might be thinking, wait a second. So if we lose out on Paul, we get Epaphroditus. Like this is, is this kind of the B team here? You know, is this just like the youth leader or something? But Paul wants to stress, no, Epaphrodite. I mean, listen to what he has to say about him. He's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. In fact, the word messenger there is the Greek word apostolos, okay? Apostle. Paul's um, bringing Epaphroditus up to this level and saying, he's practically an apostle for you. He wants to stress and to emphasize to them, look, this is not just um, some, some guy that you can poo-poo, that if you get Epaphroditus, rats, we missed out on Paul or even Timothy. No, 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 no. He's a fellow brother, a fellow soldier whom you can trust. And he goes so far to say um, at the end of that passage, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, all right? Have the big welcoming banner to him, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What's the bottom line with this? I think that this is a really important message for the church of all ages to take home. And I think of a, a comedy bit that uh, Jerry Seinfeld used to have about groomsmen at a wedding. You know, he's like, why is it? So you've got the, the bride and she's very special. She's got her own dress. And then, you know, there's a different dress for all of the other bridesmaids. But he says, when it comes to the groom, he and all the other groomsmen, they look basically the same, right? They've all got the tuxedo. And the question that the, the pastor asked the presider is, you know, do you take this man, right? Because Seinfeld saying, because really at the end of the day, it's, you know, we could swap out these guys one or another. So you take this, this man. <laughs> Paul is saying something similar here, trying to convey something similar to the Philippians because they're thinking, oh, if we don't have Paul, we've got no hope. And churches can fall into this mindset sometimes. Oh, if, we've don't, if we don't have pastor so-and-so, then you know, the church is just going to fall apart. The church is not built on the foundation of a pastor. And if it is, that is a very unstable foundation indeed. You see this happen, don't you? You see it happen um, with you know, big churches where they're the, the founding pastor is there for 30 years and they just become kind of dependent upon him. And when he goes, it kind of falls apart. I heard news of uh, a brother who was a church planter down in Texas. He was a very charismatic, um, dynamic pastor. He left, and the church almost immediately just folded up. And I've, I've told uh, my own story of when I was a, a church planter and as a vicar, 
And I did a, a church plant down in Arizona. And I'll be honest, I let it too much in my own strength rather than raising people up. And when I left, it soon thereafter crumbled. I don't blame the people for that. I blame myself that I didn't do a better job of conveying to them it's not about the leader. See, who do you take as your pastor? This man. It's part of why we all wear the same get up, see? So that you can just say from one to another, the pastor's job is simply to be the, the stand-in for the Lord, to bring you, to proclaim to you the good news. Whether it's one guy or another, look, we all have our gifts, our strengths, and our weaknesses. And, you know, God provides for his church. So he did for the Philippians, and so he, he continues to do. That's just kind of a, a quick blow through this last part of the chapter. But questions or comments on Timothy, Epaphroditus, or what we talked about there? Philippi. That seems, I mean, that seems to be the impression that we get. Yeah. That. Well, and th this can be both a positive or a negative when you think about whether somebody's going to receive them as a pastor, right? What's Jesus's famous word? Prophet has no honor in his own what? hometown. Um, and so there's this sense, uh, we, we get the impression that Paul, part of the reason Paul's sending him back is because he's been so ill. And so he, he's sending him back home. Maybe mom just needs to make him some chicken noodle soup. We're not, can't say for sure. But there's this, this sense that maybe they're not thrilled to have Epaphroditus come back because like, well, we know Epaphroditus, nice kid, not sure he'd be a great pastor. Paul's saying, no, make no mistake. He, he's a, a faithful shepherd of the flock. So yeah. Yes. Apostle, yeah. Yes. Right. Why is it, you know, he made a distinction between he's not really an apostle. Yeah, yeah. But right. Good question. Was he not sent? Yeah. So um, Hans's question is about okay, he gets called an apostle, and I kind of alluded to a distinction there. So um, you can think of apostle in the broad and the narrow sense, okay? So in the broadest sense, an apostle is simply a sent one. Epaphroditus was a sent one. And even in a sense today, we could still talk of pastors, missionaries as apostles in the sense that they are sent out. You know, how will, think of Romans chapter 10, how will they hear unless somebody is sent, okay? So there is that sense in which all of, of the leaders of God's church are apostles, but I'm distinguishing, as I think Paul would distinguish, between the narrow sense of apostle, which is the 11. This is why, actually, I mean, we had the reading today from Acts chapter 1, where the uh, original 11 apostles, after Judas has, has gone away, um, say, we need to fulfill his office. Okay, So it, it was an office of apostle, those original 12 which obviously had symbolic significance too with the 12 tribes of Israel. That expresses here how, in a sense, the church is the new Israel, the reconstituted Israel, not built around the 12 tribes, but the 12 apostles were then sent out. So in that broad sense, yeah, Epaphroditus is an apostle, even as I, in a sense, am an apostle and really all of God's people, but in the, not in that narrow sense. Matthias was, as he was kind of you know, a, a draft pick, so to speak, a, a late one. And Paul himself um, gets referred to as one untimely born, an apostle, as kind of a special case. So uh, there ends up being a baker's dozen. That's right. Uh, good, good question. All right, any other questions about 
Timothy, Paphroditus? Okay. Well, Paul just wants to really convey, you're going to be okay, right? The church is not going to fall if Paul passes away. You're going to be well taken care of. That brings us then to to chapter three. And here, um, just briefly, verse one, Paul kind of gets out over his skis a little bit. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's kind of like when you're uh, writing by hand a letter and then uh, you start to run out of room. You know, you think, oh, okay, I I better wrap this up. Uh, Like, oh, finally, uh, rejoice in the Lord. But then it's like Paul turns it over and realizes, oh, I've got some more room to write. Because it sounds like he's wrapping it up. And then he goes on for two more chapters. Um, so you'll see if you look in chapter uh, four, you turn, turn the page. He picks up again in, in verse eight of chapter four. Finally, finally, brothers. Okay, now really, I mean, finally now. And he still goes on for half a chapter. It's a hard time, you know, one of those guys that can be tough to tear away sometimes. But this is the, the false start. But this that really does sound the, the keynote of the letter. Is he wants to say rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. But now recognizing that he's got some more room to write, he continues on with verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All right. They seem like some harsh words. What's going on here? What's, what's provoking this? Well, I mentioned a moment ago how it was important for the tw- there to be the 12 apostles as symbolic of the 12 tribes, because the church was, in a sense, the new Israel. This question of who is the true Israel of God, which is to say, who is the true people of God, was very much a live one in Paul's day. And to a lesser extent, it still is even in our own day. But very much in Paul's day, there was this question of who are the true people of God? Is it the Jews, according to the flesh, or is it those Jews and Gentiles who now are believing in Christ Jesus and calling on him? Paul makes very clear where he stands on this, right? But first of all, why this threefold lookout in verse two, the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, who does he have in mind there? Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. That's right. And I heard something over here. Pastor. Okay. Um, this, this is exactly right. So this was a group that um, they came to have a, a technical title. They called the Judaizers, the Judaizers and J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. The Judaizers were those who professed some belief in Christ, but still wanted to hold on to and insist upon Um, the laws and the customs of the Old Testament. And the upshot of that is basically they're saying, look, faith is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You're going to need more than that if you're going to be a member of the true people of God. And Paul's response to that could not be stronger and more categorical. He says, look out for these guys, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. And here he uses a clever play on words, which is a little bit gruesome, but the Greek word for circumcision was peritome, peritome. The word translated by the phrase mutilators of the flesh in verse uh, two is katatome, katatome. And what he's saying is for those 
uh, Perry Tomei, how to say this without being uh, too untactful here. Perry Tomei literally means to cut around and Kata Tomei means to cut off. Um, I'll just leave it at that, okay? But Paul is saying, look, these are the guys that, that are the bad guys. They're, these are not, they are identifying themselves and marking themselves out by circumcision and saying, this is what really makes us who we are. And Paul's saying, no, they're, they're merely mutilators of the flesh. And to the contrary, verse three, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Um, he's saying, look, you want to talk about the circumcision? The true circumcision, the true spiritual circumcision is those who worship God by his spirit, who worship Christ Jesus. Cool little Trinitarian move right there. And guys, uh, you're joining us. We're in chapter three, verse three of, of Philippians, page 981 in the, in the Pew Bible there. Mm. Holy Ghost is among us. Here we go. Um, but there's a, a neat Trinitarian move there, right? You notice that. And in my Bible, I always like to do the, the three circles thing when I, when I see this in the scripture. Um, so you have the spirit, okay, Holy Spirit of God, God the Father, and glory in Christ Jesus, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all identified here. It says, this is the true people of God. is no longer just people who have a certain ethnic identity. But now the true people of God across, whether Jew or Greek, Paul will say elsewhere, is those who worship the Father in the power of the Spirit through his son, Jesus. Okay. Now we are the true Israel. And this has really interesting or important ramifications still today. When we think about, sorry, I'm not sure why that's kind of flickering. Um, might be, we need to turn it some more. We got the, they are newer light, light bulbs. So you notice the difference. It's definitely brighter. So I'm glad for that. But um, the, the church is the true Israel. And uh, this still comes up because, well, how do we regard the nation state of Israel? And um, there's some branches of Christendom that look at the, at the nation state as kind of, uh, of Israel as being plan A for God's people and the church is kind of plan B. And therefore, we need to be um, continually, you know, uh, always supportive of the nation of Israel. And I don't want to get into a, a political kind of thing here, but just as a, a theological point, um, the nation state of Israel is not to be regarded as God's plan A for his people. The church is plan A. This was always God's intention. Now, within the, the country that we call Israel today, are there believers? Are there people who are still part of, of God's remnant? Well, sure, absolutely. But simply having an, uh, an Israeli passport does not make you a member of God's people. Does that make sense? Um, again, we could go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but Paul is really trying to make clear, look, the true people of God is the church is those who worship the Father through his son Jesus in the power of the Spirit. But the reason why this matters so much, Paul isn't trying to just diss on, on Jews. This is going to make clear in a moment. He's very much a, a Jew from himself. He, what, he, what gets Paul more fired up, more riled up than anything else, is anytime somebody says, well, to be saved, to be justified, to be forgiven, you need Jesus plus fill in the blank, right? whatever it might be, good works, right? This, at the time of, of Luther, this was very much what it was. You need Jesus plus 
pilgrimages, right? You need Jesus plus this thing. And look, people do this in every age, right? This still happens today. You think, well, yes, Jesus is important. But do you also have, well, um, for instance, in more charismatic traditions, they'll say, well, do you have the baptism in the Holy Ghost, right? You've got Jesus, that's good. But do you also have this additional extra baptism over there? It's like, well, wait a second. Now are you adding something else, right? Scripture says there's one baptism. When you're baptized, you're, you're washed, you're made whole, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's not this extra added level or something like that. Um, we can do this in other ways. Sometimes it's folks are guilty in our Lutheran tradition. Well, it's Jesus plus a German heritage, right? And then you get a pastor named Tanetti and you're like, what do we do with this guy? Um, we laugh, but sometimes there is this kind of implicit sort of thing. Whatever we add to it, Jesus plus something else, we, we miss the boat on the gospel. Jesus, I, this is a title of a book. I can't remember who the author of it was, but it, the title was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's, that's what Paul is trying to convey here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I say it a lot. When Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't say it's mostly done. You know, he doesn't say it's, it's pretty much figured out. He says, it is finished. It's finished. Taken care of. You belong to Jesus. You're forgiven. Freed. A member of his people. All right. Comments, questions, reflections about that? Yeah, Gordon. Yes. Right. 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 So Gordon says, when we think of Israel, we think, well, everybody is, is a Jew there and everybody is, you know, a, a practicing believer. And that's most definitely not the case. So that you even have this um, strange animal you hear of somebody, sometimes somebody will say, oh, I'm an atheistic Jew. Say, How can you be an atheistic Jew? But that's where just the ethnic identity has kind of become its own thing apart from the religious faith. Yeah. Other comments, questions on, on this here? First couple of verses of Philippians 3. Right. So now then, uh, Paul is going to give his kind of backwards biography. And I think of it like um, those commercials that you used to have, the PSAs for smoking, or I should say against smoking, where you would have the, the person, they would come on and they would have like the, the tracheotomy, you know, and they'd be talking through it and they, and they would say, they would speak really sarcastically and ironically like, oh, if you start smoking, you can look, you too can look like me, right? The point of it was to be what's sometimes called an anti-authority. In other words, they have an authority, not by how great their life is, but how far it's gone wrong. And we ought to listen to that. Uh, they have a credibility with that, that now we say, okay, yeah, I had better quit smoking, right? Um, Paul is going to be almost a kind of anti-authority here, where he's not going to be bragging about how great he is, but how much he missed the boat, see? So uh, it's sort of a, a tour de force. He really just lays it all out. So he, verse three, he says, those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And by flesh there, um, it's kind of a shorthand for um, your human background and origin, but also your human achievements. And so Paul now kind of breaks off. He says, okay, although, verse four, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, a way of thinking about all that Paul's laying out here in this kind of spiritual resume is that he is laying it up in contrast to a, uh, another, say, adult convert to, to the faith. And so with each of these statements, he's, he's saying more than he's saying. So let me kind of set this out for you. First of all, he, he stresses that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This was the, the Old Testament um, description, why, when you were to be circumcised, when the males were to be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born. Side note, this is, um, standing over here, uh, not outside of the screen there, but um, this is one argument for why we practice infant baptism. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter two, Paul draws a comparison between circumcision and baptism. And uh, one thing that we can infer from that is, well, when, when did circumcision happen? Right away, on the eighth day. I mean, if not right away, very soon thereafter. The implication being that, well, Paul would have, if Paul were to be asked, so then when should someone be baptized? Well, from that analogy to circumcision, it should be right away. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the eighth day, right? We don't carry forward that same um, Old Testament law specifically, but it does suggest, yeah, we're going to baptize babies. They are part of the, the covenant people of God right from the very, the very first. Yeah, Carla. I believe so. Yeah. So Luther, Luther's birthday is November 10th, um, but he, he's named Martin because he gets baptized on November 11th, which is the feast day of St. Martin of Tours. That's way more than you, you don't need to know this for the test. Okay. Um, but yes, it was, it was right away. Just baptize him as soon as possible. And I, I still stand by that. I mean, as, as, soon, as soon as you can. Uh, but yeah, Gordon. Oh boy, is this a confession? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. In your home church. So this is this is uh, worth worth noting here. So Gordon was was saying how he was baptized twice. He was born in a Catholic hospital, and at that time, the practice there was they just baptize you right away. We're not going to mess around. Um, but still, he was baptized in uh, your Lutheran church, right? Eight days later or so. Uh, Gordon baptized on the eighth day at St. Paul's Lutheran church. No. Um, so do, do they cancel each other out, or was it wrong for that to happen? No, that wasn't wrong. And if you were baptized as a Catholic, say, does it still your baptism still count as a Lutheran? Yes. Because baptism is God's work, okay? Whether you were baptized as a Catholic or as a Baptist or what have you, it still counts. I myself was baptized Catholic. That's, you might not be surprised to learn. Um, but it, it still counts. The one exception or the one main exception, it would be like Mormons. Uh, because Mormons are not baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're just baptized in the name of Jesus. They don't believe in the Trinity. And so in that case, we would say, no, you need to be baptized truly. But among Christians, we have a lot of, you know, we've got differences among other denominations. But even if you come from a church that didn't hold to a high view of baptism or infant baptism, that, that doesn't matter. God does the work. Now, 
Uh, by the same token, if you were rebaptized, should you feel bad about it or guilty? No. Okay. Again, it's, it's God's work. Okay. If anything, we're just called to, to recognize that and say, it was a gift. When I was baptized, if I have to have been baptized again, God is the one who did the work. And that's what I'm grateful for. All right. Digression over. So he says eighth day, which is to say not as an adult. Okay. He, he was uh, reared right from the get-go as a, a practicing Jew of the people of Israel. And by that, he's saying it's um, not just a religiously. So it's almost the opposite of what you often have today saying, not just a religious Jew, but actually an ethnic Jew, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah. in. Sure. Yeah. So people don't mistaken him for a, for a Samaritan or some other half breed. He's saying, no, 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 I'm purebred. All right. I got my papers right here. <laughs> um, I'm of the, the tribe of Benjamin. I wasn't just, you know, um, circumcised. I don't just have my circumcision papers. I was actually bona fide tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's not exactly clear what he means by that, but what it, it probably suggests is he grew up in a house that still spoke Hebrew. Okay. He, he wasn't doing the, the lingua franca of the empire. He wasn't speaking Greek, but it, they were speaking Hebrew in his house. It's kind of like in today, if you got an ethnic home, somebody who grows up and their family is still speaking Spanish or Chinese. And he's saying, well, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, a Pharisee. So here he's getting at his personal achievements, right? I was, I was fully obedient. I wasn't just some, one of these marginal believers. I was sold out. I was part of the most serious group or sect of Jews. And finally, um, he was a persecutor of the church. That really shows he's got skin in the game. Look, I really believe this to the point that I'm willing to persecute others. And then finally, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying you, you couldn't find a better Jew, a more faithful, loyal, religious Jew than yours truly. But his point with all of this is not merely to for us to look at that and say, wow, Paul, Paul is bona fide, right? <laughs> Although that's true. But what he is saying is, look, sometimes, and this is the big takeaway, sometimes your greatest strengths can also be your greatest weaknesses. Sometimes your greatest strengths can also be your greatest weaknesses. For Paul, the, this, everything that he's laid out there, he's saying not that it was bad, but just the opposite. It was good. From, that, from a certain perspective. And that was part of the problem. Because why? why? Why did that become a problem? How can your greatest strength become your greatest weakness? Okay, pride. Pride. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he calls pride the great sin. And why is that, Lewis says? Because pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Oof the complete anti-God state of mind. When we're prideful, what are we, what are we saying about ourselves and about God? That's right. We can depend on ourselves. We don't need God. We would almost never say it in those exact words, of course. Yeah, Carla. Someone once taught me that the middle letter is pride and pride. Yes. Oh, good. That's really good. I like that. I is in the middle of both pride and sin. If you find yourself in the middle of those, you're in bad shape. I always learn there's no I in team. And so we want to be part of the team of, uh, no, I'm not going to push it. Um, but see, this is, this, is, this is the trap that we can fall into. 
and God constantly reminds his people of this, that when things are going well, then we can start to think, hey, I've got this taken care of, right? In the, the sermon this morning, I, I mentioned the question that a friend of mine asked, what are you praying for? What are you praying about? And many times I think when we find ourselves in a season when we're not praying a lot, it's probably because consciously or not, we're thinking, I've, I've basically got this, you know, I'm pretty good. I'll, I'll call on to God if I get into trouble. That's why uh, one author says the secret to, to a vigorous prayer life is to recognize that you are in trouble all the time. You're in trouble all the time, whether you realize it or not. Where we, and sometimes the trouble is simply, if you're feeling like, Lord, I'm finding myself relying too much on myself, on my own strength, on my own, my own powers or abilities or whatever it might be. I need you. Uh, it might surprise you to learn that still to this day, every time I'm about to ascend the pulpit, I still get the butterflies. I still get nervous. And for a while I thought, golly, is, am I ever going to get over this, right? I hope I don't now. I've gotten to a point, I hope I don't. Because it forces me to rely on him, right? And not to, to rely on myself. And the day when I think, cool, I can just step right up, bang it out, go back, no problem here. That's when I'm, I'm really in, a, in a, a, a dangerous spot. Well, I find myself caught in the middle. So other, other thoughts or reflections on that, how your greatest weak, your greatest strength can also be sometimes your greatest weakness or instances of that. Yeah, Gordon. Yep, glad you're here. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, well, listen, this is for all of us that, uh, yeah, we can come to church, can worship God, set aside this hour or a couple hours, and then go back home and still act in, you know, very worldly sorts of ways. And that's true for all of us. Um, so what, what do we do about that? I mean, as kind of to the point of what I, I preached on this morning, but like, we, we gotta, we're going to live in that tension. Yes, we live in this world, but to strive at the same time not to be of this world uh, can be a grave difficulty. But I do think it's okay to watch the Packers, right? Uh, just so long as you don't, you know, paint yourself green every time, right? But yeah, Ann, you had your... Or, well, yeah, <laughs> I was wearing a Packer face right now. Yeah, Ann. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, this this is a really important point. So Ann said, you know, if we think that we've we've got it all together or we act like we do, that can actually um be a, a worse witness to the faith or even a discouragement to our fellow brothers and sisters because the, the implicit message is, well, if you're really going to be a Christian, you've got to be like me, right? And you've got to have it all put together and make sure the cheese has never fallen off your cracker and all of your to-do boxes get checked every time your email inbox is always empty. You are put together, man. 
Um, and then that can lead other people to think, well, wait a second, is there any, is there any room for cheese falling off the cracker sinners like me? Um, or again, to discourage one another. So uh, this is a great point, Ian. To be a Christian is not to be somebody who's got it yourself all put together all the time. But in many cases, it's just the opposite. It's recognize I, I am broken. I'm a, a failure. I have, there are too many boxes that still have not been checked. But Jesus has checked them all for me. That's what matters. Jesus plus nothing, nothing. Not your goodness, not your badness, nothing equals everything. That's what matters most. So thank you guys. We'll uh, pick up with what Paul has to say next in uh, Philippians 3 next week. See you then. Thank you.